There are many things. Can you guys hear me okay? There are many things that make us weary in life. We can be weary from poor health or overwork. We can grow weary in suffering, and we can grow weary in doing good. We can weary of stress and fighting. But perhaps nothing wearies the soul quite like sin. Sin saps us of strength. And not just our sin, but sin around us can leave us weary. The heart grows as heavy as lead. The face grows long and faint. The mind runs about in worry until it collapses. The soul cries out, how long, O Lord? The more we sin, the wearier we get the more others sin against us, the harder it is to go on. Sin is a wearying thing, a tiresome thing. And the weariness of sin may attack God's people in the very midst of their service to him. And when it does that and when it grows in our lives, sin has the the tendency to sort of bring our eyes down to the sin itself or to bring our eyes down to our failure. And so sin is myopic. It is nearsighted. It's short-sighted. It, it focuses us on things that are not over the horizon, but just in front of us. It, it attempts to have us cave in on ourselves. And so one of the things we desperately need when we are in our sin, or sin is around us and coming against us, and when we feel weary of soul, is vision. We need to be able to see up and out to things to come. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are in a series in the book of Zechariah. That minor prophet of the Old Testament who, along with uh, Haggai, was sent to Israel when Israel had been um, sort of in exile for 70 years and now have returned to the land. And they've come back to the land under the leadership of Joshua the high priest uh, and Zechariah the prophet. Uh, and they've come back to the land to do two things that God has called them to do. To build the city walls and to rebuild the, the, the city and then to rebuild the temple so that he can reinstitute worship in Israel. And yet they've come back and they faced opposition. The nations around them have opposed them, and and they have uh, opposed them sinfully so, slandering them to the king, misrepresenting them to the king, stalling the work that God had called them to do. And as we saw in Zechariah chapter 4, Israel was weary. They were tired. They were focused on the sin before them, and they needed vision of what was to come. In our text this morning, Zechariah chapter 5, God gives him a vision. And it's a vision of God judging the wicked. God will take care of sin and sinners. And that will be good news to his weary people. Look with me at Zechariah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you're new to the Bible... 
When I say chapter, that's the big number in the Bible. When I say verse, that's the small number. So we're going to read from Zechariah chapter 5, big number, beginning in verse 1, small number, through to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief, the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the laden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The the wind was in their wings. They had wings like wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask again that you would bless your word to your people. Strengthen us, O Lord, by these visions that you gave Zechariah. And help us by these very visions to see a future for ourselves. Speak, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to consider this chapter in three points. Three, three simple statements here. The first point is this. God repays sinners for their sin. God repays sinners for their sin. That's what we see in verses 1 to 4. The second thing I want us to see is in verses 5 to 8, that middle paragraph. And we might summarize it this way. God restrains wickedness in the land. God restrains wickedness in the land. And then finally, verses 9 to 11, the last paragraph, we might summarize this way. God removes wickedness from the scene. God removes wickedness from the scene. God repays sinners. God restrains wickedness. God removes wickedness from the scene. This is the vision that God gives Zechariah. Let's take those in turn. God repays sinners for their sin. Verse 1 is the first vision of the chapter. Zechariah lifted his eyes and he saw a fine scroll. Verse 2 gives us the dimensions of this scroll. It was 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. We don't use cubits nowadays, but it's roughly a foot and a half each cubit. So this scroll was massive, about 30 feet long and about 15 feet wide. Interestingly, the dimensions of the court of the temple. God is speaking. His word is in this scroll, written on the front side and the back side. Verses 3 to 4, the angel interprets the scroll for Zechariah. Look there at what he says. 
This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleansed out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. A couple decisions we have to make if we want to understand this explanation. The first thing we have to do is interpret what is meant by curse. Where it tells us very clearly that this scroll is, is, is a curse going out through all the land. When you hear the word curse in the Bible, don't think New Orleans and voodoo. This is not the occult. A curse here is another word for God's judgment. This is God's pronouncement, his righteous pronouncement of judgment against the land. It's a lot of judgment. A 30 foot by 15 foot scroll written on both sides. And notice there in verse 4, it, God sends it out. It's a picture of his word spreading, of his word going out and, and, and making its way throughout the land. This, this curse will spread around the land. So the second thing we have to determine is what's meant by the whole land. Does the angel mean Israel or does he mean the unbelieving nations around Israel? As a case, it can be made for either. Certainly, Israel in chapter 1 has been called to repent and to return to God from their sins. In that case, the judgment of God is beginning with the household of God, as the New Testament tells us. But I think it's better to understand this as a reference to the land, meaning the, the sort of surrounding nations around Israel. Those nations who harassed them and attacked them and stalked them, who, as the curse goes out, lied on them bore false witness against them, and who sought to steal the things of Israel for themselves as they plundered this once captive people now trying to rebuild their nation and rebuild their lives. But what's clear is how pervasive God's judgment is. Notice there, everyone who steals and everyone who bears false witness. Those are just indicative of all of God's law. To break God's law at one point is to break all of God's law. And so everyone who transgress against the Lord, notice verse 3, they will be cleaned out. Verse 4, they will be consumed. And according to verse 4, the curse of judgment shall enter the house of the thief and enter the house of those who swear falsely by his name. And that judgment, that word which goes into that house will, will consume both timber and stones. It's a symbol of the complete judgment of the whole person. On Israel's day, this prophecy would have either been a sober call to repentance, as we, get, so we saw in verse one, chapter 1, or it would have been a great encouragement in the weariness of sin. Since God addressed their need for repentance in chapter 1, I, I think the Lord here is encouraging Israel that it's going to be okay. All of the intimidation, all of the bullying, all of the harassment, all of the sin, in other words, committed against you, it, it will not prevail. It will not overcome you. It will not overwhelm you. It will not triumph against you. I, your God, send my word into the world and everyone who steals, everyone who bears false witness against you will be consumed 
in my righteous, holy judgment. Don't be discouraged. Don't grow weary. Don't faint. I'm with you. And this gives us encouragement to the Christian church today too, doesn't it? I mean, to have faith in Jesus Christ is to have your sins forgiven. It's to have God's judgment against you satisfied because he judged Jesus instead of you. It it is to have faith in Jesus to become one of God's own people adopted into his very family. And the Lord cares for all that are his. He watches over us and he, he defeats all of our enemies. Israel was surrounded by enemies and weary by their enemies. And so the Christian church and the Christian is surrounded by enemies and, and weary by enemies, assaulted and beleaguered and, and tired because of this fight against unrighteousness and sin. And this is why Paul celebrates our victory in 1 Corinthians 15. If you like, keep your finger in Zechariah and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 58. And Paul began that chapter talking about the gospel being the thing of first importance. And he's had this long meditation on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's led it, all of that's just led him to praise. It's led him to doxology. And notice what he says in verse 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable, meaning when our bodies, which are wasting away, become immortal, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying our worst enemies, death, which comes from sin, and by implication all of our other enemies, our flesh, the world, and the devil, they are defeated. Death is swallowed up in victory. Sin is defeated. The sting of sin is plucked out by the crucifixion of Christ. And so Paul rejoices. He says, praise be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Lord Christ has defeated your greatest enemy if you are in Christ. All of your foes have been vanquished. All of your rivals have been conquered. Every threat to your soul has been defeated decisively and finally through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul has one more thing to say in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice there, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Can't you hear Israel hearing that in their day building the temple? Can you hear that today, church? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't faint. Don't quit. Don't let anybody get you off the dime. Hold your post. Ready yourself. Don't don't faint in the face of opposition. Don't tremble in the face of death itself. Don't tremble in the face of sin and judgment because Christ, your captain, is victorious. Christ, your king, has won. Christ has emptied the grave. He has defeated sin. He has crushed Satan's head. And you are in Christ. Be steadfast. 
immovable. Abound, church, in the work of the Lord. For your labor, as weary as it gets sometimes, is not in vain. How are you working for the Lord? Are you raising children for the Lord? Uh, you are going to some vocation, whether it's secular or sacred, and there working, Colossians 3, as unto the Lord? Are you serving in children's ministry or are you out with the evangelism team? Are you singing in the praise team? Are you just doing the regular work of opening your Bible and sharing God's word with other people? How are you laboring for the Lord? Beloved, don't grow weary. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Keep teaching those children those same lessons over and over and over again. Don't grow weary. Keep keep bearing witness in the workplace by how well you do your job, even when the boss doesn't appreciate it. Don't grow weary. Be steadfast. Continue to share the gospel with that neighbor and that loved one who seems so utterly disinterested, maybe even hostile. You will reap if you do not faint. This word about God judging sinners to the righteous It's good news. It means there is freedom and liberty and a kind of peace to come. The removal of sin and the removal of sinners is a relief to all God's people. We rejoice in the fact that Christ is victorious. And one day we'll see God's complete repayment against sin. And all that sin has done to harass us will be perfectly over. If that's true of us, beloved, in a country that knows such freedom, where we can gather right now and freely sing praises to God, how much more ought we to pray that this truth would encourage the persecuted church? A church in China, a church in India, a church where sin is in open rebellion against God's people. And our brothers and sisters meet in homes in secret or gather in underground places to be able to to praise and worship God. Pray for them, beloved, that they might be strengthened and encouraged with a vision of God one day putting an end to sin and repaying those who oppose his people. God repays sinners for their sin. But there's a second thing in this vision. God restrains wickedness in the land. That's what we see in verses 5 to 8. The angel again talks with Zechariah. He tells Zechariah to look and tells Zechariah, to, hey, what do you see, man? And this time, the prophet, he doesn't quite know what he's looking at. He's, I don't know. What's that? Verse 6. And the angel explains, this is the basket that is going out. And the angel says, this is their iniquity in all the land. The word translated basket there comes from the Hebrew word ephah. And ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel. That clears it up, right? <laughs> it's about 22 liters. We're kind of getting there, slowly but surely. It's about six gallons of milk. All right? So this is a basket that would hold about six gallons of milk. And the angel shows Zechariah this basket, and he says it's going out. And he tells us what this basket is. Notice there, it's the iniquity in all the land. Iniquity is a word we don't use much. It's a, another word for sin. 
It's a word that means gross immorality or unjust behavior. I don't know much Latin, but it comes from two words in the Latin that means not equal. It's an unequal, unjust behavior. Two things to note about this part of the vision so far. Number one, a little iniquity spoils the whole land. About six gallons worth in this picture has ruined the whole land. Number two, the iniquity is captured. It's captured. God is restraining the wickedness of the land in this vision of the wickedness being in the basket. Verse 7 is interesting. An interesting thing happens. The the angel takes the cover off the basket so Zechariah can see inside. Now, ask yourself a question. Don't look at verse 7. Ask yourself a question. If God were to show you what iniquity looked like, what do you imagine it would look like? So most of us imagine something grotesque, a monster, something raging and ugly and and threatening. Notice what happens in verse 7. The angel shows Zechariah what's inside the basket. And Zechariah's like, ooh, a woman. (laughs) Notice the exclamation mark. A woman. (laughs) Zechariah was surprised. He wasn't expecting iniquity to come in as delicate and lovely and desirable a form as a woman. Beloved, let us learn this from this vision. Iniquity comes packaged as beauty. Iniquity and sin comes in the form of tenderness and comeliness. Sin's seduction lies in its appearing beautiful to us. If we could recognize the horror of iniquity with a glance, then it wouldn't capture so many of us, would it? No, that's why in Proverbs chapters 1 through 8, foolishness and sin is pictured as a seductress. Sin entices with beauty, then it entraps in brokenness. That's what it does. It entices with beauty so that it might break us. So, beloved, we must learn to interrogate the things we call beautiful or good or righteous. We must interrogate our notion of what's fun and what's joyful. We must interrogate these things because the New Testament tells us Satan and his demons masquerade as angels of light. And this text tells us that iniquity and sin appears to us in its beautiful form as a woman. Notice in verse 8, the angel has to explain to Zechariah, man, this is wickedness. (laughs) That's the woman's name, which means that's that's the character of the thing. And so the best way to interrogate our desires and to interrogate our notions of beauty, to interrogate our notions of what's fun, is to allow God's word to define what's beautiful and what's good and what's fun. That's what happens for Zechariah. The angel speaks the word of God to Zechariah to clarify, no, bruh, don't get in the basket. This is wickedness herself. And so Zechariah sees differently, doesn't he? 
This is what happens with God's word when we give ourselves to God's word and and we think about what's good and right and true and beautiful and lovely. God's word begins to shape that for us and we see differently that we might not be taken in by the deceptiveness of wickedness. Notice one other thing about verse 8. The angel thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the laden weight on its opening. That word thrust in in the original language implies a a strenuous wrestling match. So wickedness and the angel start scuffling. And the angel now wins. He thrusts her back into the basket, which means she was trying to get out. And he closes the lid on her. Beloved, give sin an inch and it will take a mile. Whenever we lift the lid of iniquity, wickedness will try to get out of the basket. That's why there's a heavy lid on it as a weight. Wickedness must be trapped and kept locked away. So, beloved, never lift the lid on wickedness. Never lift the lid on wickedness. Say it with me. Never lift the lid on wickedness. Because unlike the angel, we don't recognize it at first sight. And unlike the angel, we don't have enough strength to put it back in the box. So never lift the lid on wickedness. Don't let its beauty seduce you. Don't let its smooth speech allure you. Don't let the warmth of your flesh tempt you to think that it's good. It's not. It seeks those whom it will devour. So Israel gets this vision. And for ancient Israel, I'm sure a picture of God restraining wickedness and iniquity was an encouragement. Right? Any righteous Israelite would have no doubt been tired and weary of the fight against sin in the land and would have been tired and weary of God's law being broken. Just think of some of the attitude we see in Psalm 119. The psalmist there says in, in verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage. They're my inheritance, my portion, right? They're my riches, for they are the joy of my heart. But then he says a little bit later in verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. You see the contrast. I love your law. It's the joy of my heart, and I'm broken, and I weep to see all these people breaking it. Oh, this would have been a great encouragement to those who loved God's way and loved God's law, that the wickedness of the land would be restrained and captive and and put away as locked in a basket. And this vision through Christ applies to the church as well, doesn't it? We do not anticipate a day in this world where all iniquity and wickedness will be removed from our land. This is not a text about a modern-day nation. Zechariah 5 is not about America. Right? America is not the new Israel. All right? But in the church... We do anticipate the removal of all that is wicked from God's people. We see that in a couple ways. So we see it with regard to our own personal sin if we're Christians. So Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, as far as the east is from the west, what? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Beloved, if you're a Christian, God has taken your sin away. 
as far as east from west, which never meet, which never see each other again. So far has God removed our transgressions through faith in Christ. But there's a second way in which this applies to us and applies to the church and the world today. The Lord is right now actively restraining evil. As bad as the world is, it is not as bad as it could be. Keep your finger here and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles we provide it, you'll find it on page 989. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There, Paul has a vision of things to come, just like Zechariah. He has a vision of those things that will be coming in the end of days. And this is what he says in part, beginning in verse 6. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. The him there is the Antichrist, the lawless one. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus was killed with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You see what Paul is saying here. The lawless one gets his power from Satan himself. He does miracles and they're false miracles and false wonders and he he deceives. Notice the consequence in verse 10. There are those who perish at his hand. The reason that they perish is because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, they refuse to believe the gospel, and so receive the salvation of God. My friend, if you are not yet a Christian, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day wherein God is restraining the deception of the evil one. Where God is restraining the, the wickedness of the lawless one. And God is sending forth the word of his gospel into the world, even to you right now in this auditorium. God is bringing to you the word of truth, the gospel. And he's telling you that this truth comprises a message that he loves you. And not only has he loved you, but he's done something for you. He has given his son as a sacrifice in your place. That when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the penalty for sin for all those who would believe in him. And when Jesus died and was buried, he was suffering our judgment. And when God raised him from the grave three days later, he did it for our justification so that we would be right with him. And this same Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us is coming again to get his church, to gather his people, and to bring us into the everlasting kingdom of God. This is what God has done for you, to save you, to rescue you from judgment and hell, and to make you his very own loved one. Do not refuse the truth. Do not harden your heart. Soften your heart. 
receive this truth. Believe it and be saved, be rescued from God's judgment. For when the Lord stops restraining evil and it has its full terror upon the earth, will anyone then be saved? Today is the day of salvation. Believe on the virgin born, perfectly righteous, crucified, buried, and resurrected Son of God who came into the world to save us for himself and to save us from sin. God repays sinners. And my friend, if you're not yet a Christian, God also has been restraining evil to give you time to hear the truth and believe. Believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Which brings us to our third thing. Not only does God restrain this wickedness, but God removes this wickedness as well. That's what we see in verses 9 to 11. Verse 7 showed us the woman wickedness. Now verse 9 shows us two women with wings. Uh, The winged women uh, lift up the basket into the sky between heaven and earth. Zechariah watched this. The angel asked him again, uh, or Zechariah asked the angel, where are they taking the basket? Now, after seeing wickedness, I don't know why he wants to know, but, you know, he's like, where are they taking the basket? <laughs> and the angel replied in verse 11, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now, Shinar was a land of Nimrod. We first meet Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. We're told that Nimrod was a son of Cush. And the Bible says Nimrod was the first man on the earth to be mighty, a mighty man. Verse 9 of Genesis 10 tells us Nimrod was also called a a mighty hunter before the Lord. And his fame was so great that, that others who would become good hunters, they would say, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod's kingdom began in the land of Shinar. The first place we have Shinar mentioned in the Bible. Can you guess the names of the cities built there? One of them was Babel. Babel is where the people settled down, the Bible says, to make a name for themselves by building a tower that reached to the heavens. In their pride, they exalted themselves against God. And the Bible says God laughed and came down and confused their languages. This is why there are different languages in the world as a judgment against them. But Nimrod goes from Shinar and and the city he founds there, Babel. He also goes into another famous land in the Bible times called Assyria. And and he founds another famous city in, in the land of the Bible called Nineveh, which is known for its wickedness and its opposition to God. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple after defeating Israel, he took the treasures of the temple, Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 tells us, to Shinar. God prophesied in Isaiah 11 that the righteous branch would bring his people back from Shinar. And here in this vision, I think you're getting the meaning of these things. God has brought Israel out of captivity, brought them back into the land. And God now is turning and sending wickedness in this basket into Shinar to a house that will be built for it, to a pedestal that it will be set on, and it will be placed there in that area known for its opposition, the God 
what's happening there? Well, I think part of the judgment that's happening against the lands is God giving them over to idolatry. This house that's built for it is like a shrine. And this base on which it sits is like an idol's pedestal. And so people will be given over to their idolatry as, as part of the judgment that God brings upon the world. And we're told this, aren't we, in Romans chapter 1. If you like, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what we read in the New Testament. For the wrath of God, that is his judgment, right, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You see the argument so far? That God is showing his anger against unrighteousness, and that unrighteousness takes a particular form, suppressing the truth. Men know the truth about God, and they may know the truth about God just by looking at the creation. We, we know that this didn't spring up out of nothing, despite what some of our science teachers tell us. We know that there is a God who designed the universe, and in the very design of the universe, he is speaking to his creation, telling us of his glory and his power and his wisdom and his presence. And the Bible says that men in unrighteousness suppress that knowledge. They, they really do know it, but they hold it down. And they hold it down in unrighteousness, but because God makes it plain, they are without excuse. Now notice what's said next, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they became idolaters. The consequence of suppressing the truth about God is you will worship something other than God. Men are worshipers. We all worship something. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes people have a difficult time imagining what God's judgment looks like. They think thunderbolts from the sky. Or maybe God's sending down fire and brimstone. But what Romans 1 is teaching us is that in this life, sometimes the judgment of God looks like God giving people over to false worship. Idolatry is a judgment. So, beloved, you hear this morning, do you, do you not believe in God? Do you not believe in Jesus Christ? Do, do you Worship some other idea of God or worship no God at all? Have you stopped to consider that your unbelief and your idolatry is God's wrath on you? Notice what the text says in Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That in God's sight, 
a sure path to foolishness that leads to idolatry is trusting your own wisdom too much. I mean, think about it. We who are not gods deciding we determine what God is like. What foolishness. What recklessness with your own soul. What worship of your own mind. That we, limited creatures who live but for a moment and then are gone, who cannot remember what we had for breakfast last week, we would pretend to comprehend the omnipotent, omniscient, the omni-everything God? Stop it, man. This kind of foolishness is God's wrath. Flee from it. Flee from idolatry. Come to God as he really is. And listen, beloved, there is no judgment that could be more serious and more devastating than to have God leave us in our idolatry and remove us from his presence. Do not think that unbelief is clever and respectable. I know that we have entire education institutions who give that message all the time from elementary school all the way through the most advanced degrees. The the thing that is respected is the rejection of religion. Do not fall into that trap. For they are too clever by half. Unbelief is damnable and foolish according to the Bible. And so God calls everyone to repent of their imaginations about what he's like, to repent of their worship of things that are not God, to turn away from their own designs of worship and their own offerings to God and to give to God what he requires of us and to worship God as he really is. He is our creator. He is our Lord. He is our judge. He does love us, but he requires that we come to him the way he designs which is through Jesus Christ, his son, who is the mediator, the go-between, between God and men. And apart from Christ, there is no sacrifice that cleanses us of our sin and makes us right with God. It's why we sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So my friend, if you're here this morning, again, today is the day of salvation. Believe on this Jesus. Turn from sin. Do not bow at the shrines and the altars of Shinar, but trust in Jesus Christ. Church, draw encouragement from that final vision. The Lord removing wickedness from among his people. For the Lord will do the very same thing with us too. In this life, we are the church militant. We are engaged in warfare. But we will soon be the church triumphant, which has victory over all of its enemies. And in that final day, in that last day, as Matthew 13, 49 tells us, the angels will come and will separate the evil from the righteous. Right now, God drags them all up like fish in one net. But on that final day of his judgment, and when his kingdom comes, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. And he will remove the evil from the righteous. That's the vision we have. Don't grow weary as we endure the wickedness now. Don't grow faint. Don't lose heart. God has appointed a day 
for our complete and total freedom. And so fellowship with God belongs to all those who follow Jesus Christ in faith and love his name. We will not be placed in Shinar or Sheol or hell or any such place if we are Christ. We have a place prepared for us, Jesus says in John 14, in the Father's house where there are many mansions. And since he has gone to prepare a place for us there, won't he also come back and get us and take us where he has gone? Isn't that the promise? Our land is not Washington, D.C. Our land is not the United States of America. Our land is the new Jerusalem the holy city that descends from God, dressed as a bride, ready for her groom. That is the land that we look to, whose foundations are not made with the hands of men, whose foundations are unshakable, whose king is Jesus Christ, and whose reign is perfectly righteous. Fight your battles with sin and wickedness, with your eyes focused on heaven. Look beyond your struggle and see the vision that's coming. Let us all flee from sin and wickedness and flee to righteousness. Our battle, beloved, is nearly over. God has defeated our enemies and he is soon to come. Look for him. Wait for him. Hope in him. Rejoice until you see him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this vision that you've given Zechariah. Not only of your judgment of sin, but of your restraint and your removal of wickedness. We long for that day. Our souls sometimes grow weary, but we hope in the Lord. We have, Lord, felt you do this work in our souls if we are Christ's. You have turned us away from sin and turned us to Jesus to believe in him and to trust in him. And you have begun a good work in us and you will carry it on until completion. And we have heard the promise that you have made, O Lord, a place for us and we will soon occupy it where there is no more death, where there is no more dying, where there is no sin and unrighteousness at all. Shut outside of that place is every evil thing. But inside of that place is the light of the glory of Christ, where we will dwell forever and ever. Lord, hasten the day. Encourage the saints. Bring your kingdom. Fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.